Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. There are massive evacuations in Greece. Wildfires have forced thousands of tourists and residents to flee. This summer produced weather of biblical proportions for many parts of Europe, but not more so than Greece. A trail of devastation across central Greece. This region was hit by the heaviest rainfall the country has seen since records began. In the eye of the storm was Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the Greek Prime Minister, since 2019. Re-elected by a landslide last June, the honeymoon to his second term came to an abrupt end when he was confronted with multiple crises, including the worst wildfires and flooding in living history, as well as a devastating train crash that shook the country and raised questions about the competence of those who run it. Lots of people, though, think you can't blame one person for what's happened here. And when they listen to the Prime Minister of Greece saying that this was a case of human error, tragic human error, to use his phrase, that simply doesn't do it for them. And they're worried about systemic failings. But despite all of that, Mr Mitsotakis, who's talking to me for this week's edition of Power Play, stands in one of his country's best-known philosophical traditions, stoical. When I present myself in Brussels and Greece is no longer the problem child, but a lot of people actually applaud the progress that we have made. I think this is important for the country and it's also important, I think, for our collective psychology because we have been receiving quite a fair share of international bashing over the past decade. And the fact that Greece is back now, I think, helps us with what we need to do going forward. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. Kyriakos Mitsotakis has a lot to say on climate change, migrants trying to get to Greece's shores and what to do about that, and the ongoing crisis not far from him, namely the war raging in Gaza. We met in Brussels recently in the wake of a regular meeting of the EU's leaders. And it turns out he's a bit of a fan of the show as well. I listened to your previous podcast, and I know you've made the same question also to other leaders who have appeared, so I will also be very, very discreet. To unpick what the Prime Minister had to say, I'll be joined by my power panel of Politico's top experts on both sides of the Atlantic, Jamie Detmer, who covers the region and the impact of the conflict raging nearby in the Middle East, and our editor-at-large, Matt Kaminsky. But first, let's hear my conversation with Mr Mitsotakis. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, welcome to Powerplay. Well, thanks for having me. Someone said to me, you're trying to lead Europe south in climate matters in that sense of that uh, group of countries in the south who are more strongly affected, at least in the short term, by climate change. You're kind of banging on the door of France, Germany and the EU to, to put it bluntly, to pay more. Do you still feel that you're asking for more? What are you not getting? Well, first of all, we need to be uh, fair in terms of our assessment of what the EU has done and where it uh, still is demonstrating um, uh, shortcomings. Uh, it is true that the Mediterranean is mostly uh, affected by climate crisis. It is a, a hotspot. And it is also true that when we look at the 
total amount of money that we have put on the table to fight climate change, the overwhelming percentage is directed towards mitigation. How will we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and how will we become climate neutral by 2050? And of course, this is a laudable and imperative uh, uh, medium to long-term goal, but we should not forget adaptation. There's not enough money when it comes to adaptation. And uh, this was very clear when we asked for European uh, support and we realized that the Solidarity Fund uh, for this year uh, is already completely depleted. We managed to repurpose uh, European funds from the RRF, and this was certainly very helpful for Greece. But in the revision of the MFF, I am making a very strong case that we need to strengthen the Solidarity Fund in order to cope with these natural catastrophes at a European level. We're asking for two and a half. The Commission is actually asking for two and a half billion. It is a relatively small sum, given what is at stake. Symbolically, it is very important, because it's very difficult for me to convince my citizens that they need to make tough choices in order to decarbonize in the short term, tough choices, sometimes economically painful, and uh, at the same time uh, telling them that Europe is not standing by their side when they see their property is being destroyed by floods. In one sense, they have made it a choice. You were re-elected with a handsome majority, a good margin, and you've been very open about the fact that you see yourself as a reform-minded leader of Greece and that you see that as your biggest task, that there are changes that you want to make in your country. At the same time, you have you know, an awful lot of potential areas in which you need to reform. What matters most to you and how do you then go about perhaps correcting this impression that Greece at the top table at these international gatherings is smooth, outward-looking, very much part of the community of, of nations looking forward. And then there are so many problems that you have to resolve at home in the public services, in the aftermath of the terrible train crash. What have you learned? Quite a lot. But first of all, I think it is important to take stock of the progress that we have made over the past uh, four and a half uh, uh, years. Uh, Greece is now one of the best performing economies in uh, the Eurozone. Uh, we have managed to reduce our debt as a percentage of GDP at the fastest pace of any country in the world. We will have a primary surplus this year and a primary surplus uh, next year while at the same time we've managed to bring down unemployment and regain investment. Um, great. Um, and I feel quite proud as a, as a Greek representing my people because this has been a collective effort. This is not just a government that has succeeded in putting Greece in this position. When I, when I present myself in Brussels and Greece is no longer the problem child, but a lot of people actually applaud the progress that we have made. I think this is important for the country and it's also important, I think, for our collective psychology because we have been receiving quite a fair share of international national bashing over the past decade. And the fact that Greece is back now, I think, helps us with what we need to do going forward. Did you feel that personally? I mean, obviously, you weren't in power for some chunk of that time. But has it felt that Greece was on the naughty step of, of course. I mean, we, European we, Union? Of course. And don't forget now that I was also minister at a time when I had to negotiate with the Troika during very, very difficult um, times. Mm. We flirted with disaster. Greece is a country that lost 25% of its GDP, unprecedented in the history of modern economies post-World War II. And we've managed to survive. We've proven that we're resilient. And now we're essentially on our way to what I think could be a remarkable comeback. But there is still a lot of work to be uh, done, of course. And that is why I'm so focused on the reforms of my second term. But also, let me point out the fact that the Greek people rewarded us by re-electing us to power 
with a higher share of the vote than they did in 2019. This is extremely unusual for incumbent governments that had to deal with a severe crisis. So we managed to go against the trend. We defeated the populists, and we've proven that a center-right, liberal, progressive government that really tackles people's problems and focuses on important social issues can actually deliver real change and can succeed in in getting re-elected. Our discussion moved on to the international picture. Since sitting down with the Prime Minister at the end of October, I wanted to get his latest thinking on the Israel-Hamas conflict and how the Greek position is working out. So I had a few more questions for him. What do you make, Prime Minister, of the robustness or otherwise of the EU response to what is happening in Gaza and that delicate balance of support for Israel, but also concern for the mounting the awful humanitarian situation in Gaza. It's harder than it was for Israel's allies in this crisis, isn't it? I think the, U- uh, the European Union has been uh, you know, very clear from the beginning, uh, recognizing Israel's right to self-defense uh, in accordance always with international law and in particular international humanitarian law. But I think as the days have progressed, we have expressed uh, an increased concern over the plight of innocent civilians uh, and about uh, the horrifying scenes that came out of um, Gaza. And I think while we recognize that Israel has the right to defend itself, how it does so actually matters, and it matters considerably. And that is why we have also been at the forefront by we, I speak about Greece, recognizing the need uh, for a humanitarian pause in order to be able to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, to facilitate with the hostage negotiations, but also to allow for people who are currently in Gaza, who want to leave and who have the capability to leave, and I'm talking about foreign nationals. We still, for example, have a few Greeks who are in Gaza. We've been able to evacuate quite a few of them, but we still have a few who are in Gaza who could potentially like to leave to do so in conditions of safety. So I think as time progresses and as uh, Israel continues with this uh, very, very aggressive military campaign, yes, there will be an increased concern about the proportionality of the Israeli response. And I'm speaking as a friend of Israel. And I think that sometimes friends have to speak, you know, hard truths to friends uh, that at the end of the day, we should not, uh, you know, undermine what is a strategic goal to defeat Hamas, but we should also try to think about the day after, what is going to be the arrangement that will govern Gaza the day after, and not to sort of drive these divisions in such a way to make it inconceivable the day after to talk about a political solutions to the problem. You've been seen as a strong ally of of Israel also in the wake of the attack when you went there and uh, offered your support and condolences. Are you suggesting that that proportionality is now in doubt to some extent when you use the word like aggressive of the Israeli counteroffensive in Gaza? Are you saying that Israel may have stepped over the line of what you consider acceptable? Certainly uh, Spain's acting prime minister Pedro Sanchez clearly thinks that because he's called for a ceasefire is the first, I think, of the EU family to break ranks on that. I will stick with my call for a humanitarian pause and continue to express my deep concern about what is happening and to call upon our Israeli friends to show as much restraint as is possible. And I think that Israel also needs to listen to these these countries who clearly, I think, have 
and more maybe have a our friends of Israel, but also have an objective sort of position when it comes to what is um, currently happening in Gaza. Again, it is not my job to interfere with uh, operational issues, and uh, no one, I think, can give uh, sort of uh, very clear military advice on how Israel is going to fight this war. But we're looking at the consequences, and the consequences are tragic. It's a fact. Thousands of uh, innocent people, children, uh, women have lost their lives. Uh, and this is something which uh, is of uh, significant concern to all of us. I know you're being very measured in the words that you're choosing, but it sounds to me like you are more concerned about the nature and the sweeping strength of the Israeli action in Gaza than you would have been a couple of weeks ago. Am I right about that? Yes, because... Uh, more innocent uh, people have lost uh, their lives and we have uh, a significant number of casualties. And if this continues, uh, I think the the call for a humanitarian uh, pause will only get uh, stronger. And I think at the end of the day, this is really a question about being able to restore humanitarian aid to people who need it um, the most uh, to make sure that, you know, at least, you know, some of the hospitals are functioning and uh, to ensure that one will not be faced on a daily basis with these um, uh, horrible scenes. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, one needs to recognize what is the price that one has to pay in order to uh, defeat Hamas. It's a very delicate balance. I understand. And I understand also where Israel is coming from. Uh, you know, the, what happened on October 7th was beyond uh, horrific. But I would also uh, repeat what President Biden said, that the urge for revenge, uh, it doesn't necessarily turn into good politics. What about Greece's position here? Of course, you have a strategic port for American presence at Suda Bay in Crete. Are you concerned about Greece being further drawn into this conflict, as you say, as the delicate balance, but also the risks rise? We are honouring our our defence cooperation agreement uh, with the United States. Uh, We don't go beyond uh, that. uh, And I will leave it at that because these are um, operational issues. But again, I do want to highlight that Greece can be seen as an honest broker. We are well respected in the Arab world. We've had traditional relationships of friendship. And I think we are as objective as one can be in this very difficult uh, situation. And that is why, you know, I was present in Cairo. I will also be going to Paris on Thursday to meet with President Macron and many Arab leaders uh, uh, who are invited in a high-level summit regarding humanitarian assistance. And because of our geography, if we can deliver humanitarian aid in an organized manner, and ensure that this aid reaches those who actually need it the most, would be happy to do so. We just had a plane that landed in Egypt delivering humanitarian aid. And if we can explore the possibility of a sea corridor, which would, however, need the full protection of all the relevant parties to ensure that ships could safely access Gaza, would also be interested in participating in such an initiative. But we're clearly not. I'll just jump in there, Prime Minister. Say, I actually asked Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, to the guest before you on this podcast, exactly about that sea corridor. I think that idea was still coming together. So am I right in seeing your answers that Greece would be involved in that push, which I think involves the UK, France, perhaps other European powers, to push for a sea corridor to get more aid into Gaza, though that would, as you point out, also occasion a temporary ceasefire. 
Yeah, the advantage of a sea corridor is that you can pack much more humanitarian aid in a ship that you can in a truck. So if the logistics work and if it is actually convenient to do so rather than transporting you know, aid by plane and then putting it on trucks, if that is something which is doable and it can be done with the maximum amount of safety, I would be very happy to participate in such an initiative. I would never try to compete on expertise on ships with a Greek guest. <laughs> Last question for you. We've had the British Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, rather outspoken British politician, visited Greece at the weekend. She said she was there to learn from Greece about how to deal with migrant crossings. She was quite widely photographed here and on television pictures next to a kind of steel barricade. So I think that sent quite a strong message. What kind of advice do you think that you would be offering the British Home Secretary. She's, after all, in favour of leaving the ECHR. She wants the Rwanda plan to move the, the handling of some asylum claims away from the home country. Are they the kind of ideas where you see eye to eye, have want to make common cause? Not necessarily. Uh, Greece has been uh, implementing a tough but fair migration policy uh, since I took over as Prime Minister. The result has been a significant reduction in uh, illegal crossings uh, from the Turkish coast uh, to our islands. We saw a significant uptick during the summer. We've again been able to manage uh, the flows much better. In uh, October, we also have um, significant facilities on our islands, uh, reception centers. We're very quick in terms of processing asylum applications, but we also make it very, very clear that it is not up to the smugglers. It should not be up to the smugglers to determine who enters the European Union and that we have a right to protect our sea border, always with uh, full respect uh, to international law. And uh, we believe that protecting your border is essential for an overall coherent uh, migration policy. But you don't see the ECHR as a block to you in that aim? We feel that we act within the scope of European regulations when we are actually intercepting boats at sea. And I've been very clear and very unapologetic about our practice. At the same time, I've also been uh, very clear in terms of ensuring that my Coast Guard always, always saves people who um, find themselves uh, at danger at sea and then takes them, of course, uh, uh, back to the... Yeah, in fairness, you have had to maybe tighten up that message, haven't you, about your Coast Guard? Well, um, uh, look, we've been very clear about uh, what we do, but it is also, in my mind, uh, borderline absurd to place the blame on a Coast Guard trying to do a very difficult job and not to address the underlying problem, which is that uh, there are people who profit from human suffering and make tons of money. And... uh, I want to eradicate the smugglers' business model. And the way to do it is to ensure that the minimum number of boats actually reach the Greek coast. You're not attracted to something like the Rwanda plan of processing some asylum claims, the more regular or apparently irregular ones further away. I think Austria is signalling some interest in this. I don't think there would be a majority for such an idea at the European Council. And uh, we've already made significant progress in terms of the asylum and migration pact. Let's not make our life more complicated than it already is. But I will continue to advocate for more European funding for our facilities. We're spending a lot of domestic funds to um, support our infrastructure as uh, a country which sits on the external border of the European Union. Of course, we are getting a lot of European assistance, but it is important for this European assistance not to dry up over the next years. Looping back to our previous discussion in Brussels, 
I asked Mr. Mitsotakis how Greece and his own leadership would be affected if it was a different face in the White House next year. You could be talking to President Trump. How would that strike you? I know you made the, the you, you, you'd be making the same, I listened to your previous podcast and I know you've made the same question also to other leaders who have appeared. So I will also be very, very discreet and in not commenting about this possibility. What I can tell you is that the strategic relationship between Greece and the US, I think transcends the person who actually sits in the White House at any given point. And I'm saying this, I have tremendous respect for President Biden. We have an excellent cooperation. But I've also worked with President Trump before uh, President Biden. So I've actually visited two um, U.S. presidents at the White House. And when I look at Congress... And you believe that relationship would be manageable I think again. that the relationship will go from strength to strength, also because there is bipartisan support in Congress. I'm one of the few European leaders who's had the privilege to address a joint session of Congress. And I can tell you I received more applause there than I do in my own parliament by both uh, sides of the aisle. Is there any sign of rapprochement with Turkey on the refugee question? I know you've uh, tried to sort of get that dialogue going again with President Erdogan, not always an easy partner to deal with, and not least given that uh, there are sporadic threats from Ankara, from President Erdogan himself, with territorial claims aimed at Greece, which of course caused great nervousness in the Eastern Aegean. We went through four very difficult years, but there has been a change of tune from Ankara over the past months, and I'm certainly looking forward towards exploring possibilities for a a substantive Greek-Turkish rapprochement. This is, of course, also related to migration. My minister of migration was in Turkey. We need to work together to address this challenge. I was always an open proponent that Turkey needs to be supported uh, financially by the European Union because it is currently hosting uh, millions of Syrian refugees. Uh, There are win-win sort of areas we can work together. And even if we agree to disagree on our main difference, which is a delimitation of maritime zones, we can do so in a civilized manner without being at each other's throats and without threatening, uh, uh, you know, Greece in the way that Turkey has done over the past year. So I just hope, I hope that this change of approach is going to be sustainable. Greece has been heavily criticised in the last few years for its performance on issues around rule of law. And it's more than a year since your country was rocked by the surveillance scandal, the so-called Greek Watergate. The phones of many politicians, businessmen, journalists were found to be bugged by predators spyware. And we've had that investigation. It's gone on for longer than a year. It itself has become entangled. or Some people involved in it have themselves been sort of hauled over the coals. And that sometimes creates the impression that accountability is very slow to be delivered. Would you accept that analysis? What I can um, uh, tell you is that uh, this is a very serious, this was a very serious issue. I acknowledged from the very beginning that mistakes were made, but at the same time, uh, it is under judicial investigation at the highest possible level, so I cannot comment on an ongoing investigation. What I can tell you is two things. First of all, one of the big reforms I want to make in Greece is to make sure that justice does its job at a faster pace than it has done so. Uh, you guessed today. my next question. So, I was going to say, so, if we're going to wait, so, wait on Greek so justice, judicial, that can be Judicial long. reform is a, big, is a big challenge for me. The second point I want to make is that Greece is constantly improving when it comes to the rule of law scorecard. And at the end of the day, there is only 
one institution in charge of judging the progress that countries make when it comes to the rule of law, and that is the European Commission. Yeah, well, the judicial system has been brought up many times by the EU in that context. And indeed, the latest EU reports saw a deterioration in access to justice and it expressed some concerns there about the independence of the judiciary. Do you think they were wrong on that? I think that we've made um, substantial efforts to implement a very ambitious justice reform. But I acknowledge that there is still a lot of hard work to be done. Do you take political responsibility for that spyware scandal? At the end of the day, um, everything that you know goes wrong in the country, uh, <laughs> one can one can assume that the prime minister uh, is in uh, is in charge. But I've spoken publicly about this issue many times, and I should also remind you that when people go and vote, they look at the complete record of a government. And of course, I acknowledge from the very beginning that this was a problematic area. But people looked at our record, you know, they assessed our overall job and they entrusted us with the possibility to continue to govern the country. You have great international experience. You look around the world a lot. Do you really see yourself as leading your country to face outwards as well as deal with its domestic problems? It's important to be able to represent your country internationally. What happens in Brussels, for example, matters. Uh, if we are good negotiators, we'll be able to bring back more more money for Greece. That's exactly what we did when we negotiated. You took the, us the, von der Leyen on holiday the next, to Greece. Uh, or she came on, on a, a vacation to Greece. She did. And I realized, you know, I, it's sort of strange why sometimes people are always uh, looking for a subplot. And what is essentially a, a good personal relationship that uh, I think is, is important? I mean, at the end of the day, we invest in these good personal relationships, but uh, I mean, the institutional independence. Is guaranteed, and we're all, you know, professional. Was there downtime, and was there a bit of beach? Was there a bit of beach going on there? I saw you sitting we're on all, uncomfortable I mean, chairs. We are, we are, we are professional politicians, uh, but at the end of the day, getting to know our interlocutors better on a personal basis, I think, is is quite important. We spend hours and hours in the council. Xavier Betel, whose last council is actually this one, made it very clear that also friendships can develop in, in spite of the fact that uh, we are politicians. I was trying to find out if you went, had pool time together, but I wasn't quite getting an answer to that one. Ah, well, let's keep, let's keep our... Uh, after all, it was a private trip. Fair with, enough. With no, with no political connotations. Uh, I must ask you a question, our final question we ask all of our guests, and you haven't had any warning on this. Who would you like to hear follow you as a guest on Powerplay. Who would you listen to? We know you listen to Keir Starmer, so we hope to keep you as a listener, get your five-star rating. Good get enough, someone, good. you know, um, to talk about uh, the tremendous progress that uh, AI has uh, has made. Uh, how about, I don't know, Demis Hassabis from, um, uh, you know, DeepMind. Uh, um, uh, someone who's who can really contribute to educating all of us about what is happening in a space that may seem incomprehensible to most of us. Demis Hasebis, it is. That's fine. We'll get you to come and help with the bookings. Mm. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Coming up on Power Play, our power panel will be with me to explore what you've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology.
It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. We're back with our power panel to take stock of my conversation with Kyriakos Mitsotakis. And to do that this week, we have Politico Europe's opinion editor, Jamie Detmer, and Matt Kaminsky, editor-at-large of Politico in Washington, D.C. Welcome to you both. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great to be with you both. Jamie, what did you make of Mr. Mitsotakis's assertion that Greece is no longer Europe's problem child? He sounded quite confident about that. Well, they've done very well. You know, they pay back debt, the economy is stabilised, they've got surplus budgets, etc. It is pretty impressive. And that's why I think he won the second election in June. He was rewarded for economic competence by, you know, returning the Greek economy to stability and growth after what? A severe debt crisis that rocked the whole Eurozone and three international bailouts. I mean, there's still some political instability problems there. Uh, You mentioned in the interview, you questioned him about wiretapping, and he rather went away from that. There are concerns that the government was involved in that. The investigations don't seem to be going anywhere. Just a week ago, some of the investigators were blocked. And there are also questions about the freedom of the press. But certainly in terms of the economy, he has turned things around and Brussels is relieved because they're looking at some other southern European states that are more worrisome at the moment, particularly Italy. I just think the broader context here is really just fascinating, is that uh, we've had Greece is where the populist wave in Western politics really began in earnest after the financial crisis in 2010. You had the first sort of populist party. It happened to be a left-wing populist party take power. And that sort of started, you know, like Brexit led sort of to Trumpism across the world. Greece is also the first country where populists were defeated at a national election by a mainstream party. I think Mitsotakis probably should get more credit as well for the reason why the populists came in, because both the legacy parties in Greece were completely discredited. You know, they were led by uh, corrupt, uh, there were sort of oligarchs who were in power. And even though Mitsotakis comes from the ruling family, he kind of brought a new sort of generation, a new technocratic approach in. And things aren't by no means perfect in Greece, but it is very interesting to kind of to be reminded that as everyone bemoans, you know, the sort of the rise of populism, that sort of competent government, that voters do change their minds and they are convinced when uh, politicians deliver. And again, with a lot of caveats here, he has delivered and that's why he won this year, which is pretty remarkable. Not only did he beat them once, he beat them again, which is a a real achievement. Beating them twice is is always the position you'd like to be in as Prime Minister. Uh, Jamie, Matt has a point there, doesn't he, that there's a reason why Mr. Mitsotakis has become something of a poster boy for the centre-right in Europe. He has fended off populists of the far left and the far right. How long can he hang on to that somewhat golden image, given the crises he has to navigate since his re-election victory? A big question. I mean, I agree with Matt in terms of, uh, you know, the populism. This is where it began and it's been defeated in these last two elections there. You know, in the end, I think... uh, 
a lot of us think in terms of ideology when I think most of the electorate think in terms of competence and what is, you know, deliverable. I mean, that was one of the things that the Biden team were pressing on before the elections, that in the end, democracy had to prove it could be successful and be competent and do the bread and butter issues that most people care about. As long as he continues to do that, I think he will be successful. Whether he'll be successful in doing it is the question. And this is a problem for governments right across the board. Incumbent governments tend to be hit. The other thing noticeable about him, it was a re-election of an incumbent government, which is getting a little unusual these days. People want delivery. They want competence. You see this in the UK where, you know, the phrase is everything is broken. Nothing seems to work whether it be the National Health Service or pensions or whatever. So I think this comes down to an issue of competence, and people are less tribal now about voting for the left or voting for the right. They're all parties they used to vote, and we saw that in the Italian elections recently. I think it's competence, as Jamie says, is also freshness and a generational change. And what's remarkable about Europe today is that that southern belt in Europe, those Mediterranean countries, the club meds, which were the problem children at the time, now have some of the more interesting leaders. You have Sanchez in Spain, Maloney, who's surprising people in Italy, and now Mitsotakis in Germany. Matt, you were in Europe covering the aftermath of the financial crisis. How much do you think Prime Minister Mitsotakis deserves credit for Greece returning to prosperity? Because it was a very long, hard slog of austerity uh, imposed after the country nearly went bankrupt, uh, the so-called Troika, the ECB, the European Commission, the IMF. I mean, anything with letters and acronyms was involved. It looked at one point like Greece might have to get out of the single currency in Europe. Well, the Greeks, I mean, the whole Greek nation kind of looked over the precipice and saw the alternative. And that, I think, made people realize that they were uh, had to accept the austerity that sort of got them on track. I think, strangely, Prime Minister Tsipras will not get the credit for it from his electorate, but probably will get some credit from history from having kind of shaken things up after 2015. Yes, there was a crisis in 2015, they might leave, but then putting them on this path and then Mitsotakis has actually benefited from something that Tsipras, the previous prime minister, had started and uh, paid a political price for by losing power. Jamie, he was tentatively upbeat, I thought, about a rapprochement with Turkey's President Erdogan. I thought he was being diplomatic, saying that he was a, a kind of smart customer, but he didn't deny that it was a difficult relationship. What did you make of that? Well, I'm sure it's going to be a difficult relationship. Of course, back in July, he had his first meeting with the Turkish leader, their first face-to-face meeting, what, in 16 months to build on what they call positive momentum. And maybe that momentum continues. And it was heartening to see a switch in rhetoric between the two countries. As you know, they've been came close to blows in 2020 over territorial disputes in the waters where they could be able to do energy drilling. Uh, and they've got the quarrels over the long-running dispute over Cyprus. But, you know, the Turkish leader is very transactional. And he can switch on a dime, as we have seen frequently in the past, if you can get some deliverables, I think that repression may continue. And I think for him, for Erdogan, the deliverables are help on visa liberalisation for Turks travelling to the EU and improvements in the customs agreement between the EU and Turkey. But as I said, he is a mercurial Erdogan and rather hard to predict. 
I don't think on turf, frankly, because that's been a you know a sort of an irritant, you know, for the last uh, hundred years now, since the end of the kind of Greek-Turkish war, and and in some ways, the, Erdogan doesn't have great relations with Mitsotakis, but I think have probably as good a relationship as you've had between Ankara and Athens for a long time. But I, I do agree that you know that near-death experience that Greece had a decade ago, and now having two and a half percent growth being upgraded by you know S and P to be investment grade. I think people are feeling that things are uh, sort of going in the right direction, that, that that also has tempered some of these furies you had in Greek politics, you know, uh, both on the far right and far left. I mean, you do have the far right problem in Greece, you know, 13% of the population is not nothing, but there's a kind of, it seems like there's a consensus around let's normalize things. We can kind of crazy for a long time here. There is a bit of a danger here of perhaps mistaking the rhetoric for the reality. If President Erdogan can turn around one day and make a veiled threat, he said something like, we can come in the night, uh, referring to possibly taking back our islands, that, that uh, are Greek islands that are, are close to Turkey. That uh, line resonated, I know, certainly with a lot of people that I, I knew in Greece were very worried about it. Do you think he still needs to be concerned about President Erdogan's intentions? Any Greek leader worth anything would be concerned about the intentions of their historic uh, enemy just across the Aegean Sea. I just think that Erdogan is fundamentally a transactional politician. That's what Europe has experienced with him. That's what NATO has just experienced with him when he tried to block Sweden and then sort of let him through to join NATO because he wanted something in return. And I don't really... Erdogan has a lot of domestic problems and he is unpredictable in a certain sense, but I think the one thing that is predictable about him is that if he is causing trouble, it is because he wants something in return. And uh, it's up to Athens and Brussels and Washington to figure out what that might be. Well, thank you very much indeed to Matthew and to Jamie, this week's power panellists. And do be sure to join us next week for more interviews and analysis. If you haven't already, please take a moment now to follow PowerPlay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly from wherever you are in the world, you can email us powerplay at politico.eu. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and from Berlin, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Join us next week for another edition of Powerplay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.